Welcome to Curious Salma. My guest today is Dunya Kamel. Dunya is an Egyptian novelist and producer. She published three novels, Random Arrangement, Tertibet Ashwaiya, Cigarette Number no. 7, Segora Sabah, and Her and Doha, Heya wa Doha. She has also produced more than 50 documentary films and numerous television shows for various Arab networks. She currently lives between Egypt and the UAE. I've met Dunya through a friend in Dubai last year. She's a very genuine and warm person, and I'm so excited to have her today. How are you, Dunya? Hi, Salma. How are you? Thank you so, so much for joining me today. Ah, thank you for having me. I'm very excited uh, to start talking with you and discussing a lot of things about writing and journalism. So let's dig in first by asking, what are you curious about? Everything. I'm curious about everything, basically. I'm curious about stories of people, different people from all kinds of backgrounds, from all kinds of countries. I think the most curious thing and the most inspiring things to think about to think about is people and how their stories matter and how their stories make a difference. I'm also curious about people. So that's one thing we have in common. Yes. We also have in common that you, I studied journalism, but didn't work in it. But you have been working in journalism for how many years? I would say 16 or 17 years now. I think, yes, early 2000s. So, but I didn't study journalism. I studied English literature and humanities. I don't don't think it had a lot to do with journalism. So I, I got my experience in journalism through practicing in a very early age. What made you decide to work in journalism then? I guess it would be the same thing. I've always been curious about stories of people and what journalism is, except for telling the stories of people who do not find, can't find people to tell their stories. So uh, that was the main thing that I wanted to tell as many stories as I could. And I think I started doing this really early. You're also a writer. Yeah, it's it's complimentary. <laughs> so you're a journalist first and then a writer second. Listen, I, I, I can't define myself as a writer. I mean, technically speaking, yes, I am. Technically speaking, you have three novels. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yes. So technically speaking, people would say that. But for myself, I cannot define myself as a writer because it's not something that I do as a profession. It's not something that I can do all the time as a job. It's something that I do only when I'm inspired, when I feel like I can consistently do it, start and finish a story from the beginning until the end. So yes, I've been doing both things. I've been writing since... I don't remember when, but publishing, I published my first novel when I was 25, I think. Yes, I was 25 or 26. And the last one was three years ago. So I've, on the span of the last, I don't know, like 15, 16 years, I've published three novels, which is not a big number. But I try. I mean, I try to write and write and usually I fail, but sometimes it just works. I think you're being too humble considering that you've been nominated recently for a Sawyer yes, Award. So it's quite an accomplishment because you've been working in journalism and you and writing. And I feel like journalism in itself is very demanding. So how were you able to do both things at the same time? When I, when I first started writing, I did not do that on a daily basis. But working, it, I've, I've always been working. I've been working since I was 16 years old. I've been always on a job, always doing what it, whatever it takes to fulfill the requirements of a job. So it was it was exhausting, but you learn during the journey, you learn during every and each task and mission and story that you're doing. For the part that has to do with, it's, it's basically television journalism. So it, it's better that we call it production or content production. So that in that part, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes so many jobs and so many different uh, responsibilities and different exposures so that you can 
reach that level that you try to, I mean, you, you try to be genuine, you try to be honest in a word that's really, it's not the easiest job for someone who's, who's, who chose that field to work in. It's not easy to tell a story as it is, as genuine and as real as it is. So it takes a lot of time and effort. As for writing, I, I, I better call it an urge. It's always an urge. Sometimes you feel like you're urged to tell this kind of story that it has been uh, bumping in your head for days or weeks or months and even years. And you feel like you have no other way than to write it down. So when it comes to this, yes, it's, you, you find the time. You'll find the space that you, you, you get it yourself to sit down and write that story. I usually feel the urge with blogging, actually. Like sometimes I feel like I have a lot of things in my head. There are um, thoughts running around. And once I get the urge, I write them down and, you know, it calms me down. But it's been a while for me since I blogged, I think. What's your blog about? It's very random as this uh, podcast. <laughs> I write reflections on things and document. I've been doing it since 2009 or 2010. But it's mostly documenting how I feel during specific moments in life, you know. You mentioned that your first, very first job, you were 16. What was the, your first job? It was in a local newspaper in Cairo. This was in downtown Cairo. And I used to go there and to train how to write a piece of news and how to translate international news and how parts of news would be placed in certain parts of the newspaper. So it was very, it, part, a big part of it was technical, was a desk job. And the other part was, of course, the content and how it, uh, how it would actually put the news together. And I have a very funny story that the first part, the first piece of, of news that I got to translate and put it in the international news section was about some mines exploding, explosion of some mines in some African country, something like that. And I translated the whole piece in a completely different way. I translated the word mine as the word cave. Okay. So it didn't make it, it. It made like the zero sense, and my supervisor was just looking at it and was like, "You do not fit here." I mean, if you can't <laughs> get the sense that something is ex fucking exploding, I'm sorry for the language. Sorry, uh, it's exploding here, and that there are people who there are casualties, and and I was like, "We can have casualties in a cave." So yeah. it was a failure, a complete failure. But uh, I mean, I caught up after a while, and but awesome, you you've you've published you've been published when you were sixteen. Like I did an uh, internship. I, I think it's not it like was. I'm published. No, Come but on, like, it's not. It's not like I'm published. It's just a piece of news that I'm translating. That was a very <laughs> fucking big deal for me in my internship when I was in college. I was, I guess, twenty two, twenty three, and I used to uh, buy the printed version of my newspaper that has my name. <laughs> I ha I still have all of them. It's a big achievement. I mean, I, I, I felt that when I had my name on um, on the credits of my first television show, it was like I was like pausing and running it again and pausing and running it again. It's like, oh, I, I am on television. Like, my name is on television. <laughs> like so. Monsters, Inc. I'm on TV. Exactly. Yes. Yes. I'm on TV. Yes. <laughs> But the thing is, it's for for that for that job when I was that uh, that young. No, I don't. I don't think that I, I. I was trying to escape it. I was trying. I was so ashamed of what I was doing. It's like I'm. I'm nothing here. It's a big wow. newspaper. Everybody's so established. Everybody's so big, and I'm the child in in the place. So, and of course, nothing of all that compares to the moment when you see your name printed on your first novel. I mean, that's that's the that's the glory. That's the real. That's the real deal. Does that mean that you were a nerd in school? I was a nerd in school and in college. Mm. I was a real nerd. Like I was top of my class. 
basically in college more than in school. In school, I was I was a good student. I was a very good student. But in, in college, I was top of my class and everybody was like, who's the weirdo? Who's the girl who, I mean, she's, she looks like a tomboy and she's always, she's on top of her class. I don't think it was because I was a nerd. It was because I studied something which I have passion about, which I really liked, which was literature. So there was nothing actually impressive for me because I already read everything before. I, 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 I mean, I'm, I'm a good reader. I read a lot when I was a kid and when I was a teenager. So when I went to college, it was like, I'm studying my hobby. I'm studying everything that I actually read when I was younger. So there was no surprises. There was nothing that's difficult for me to understand or anything. So it was very easy and it was easy to stand out when I was in, in college. So yes, I was, I mean, they called me a nerd. I don't think I am, but they called me a nerd. What was your favorite novel in college then? My favorite novel in college was um, a Virginia Woolf piece called Mrs. Dalloway and a, and a Kafka and a Kafka novella that's called The Metamorphosis. Both, both. <laughs> I studied the, the Kafka. Yeah, I studied Kafka. And I was, I, I remember I was, I was 19, maybe, or 20, I was 20. And I remember talking to my professor back then and asked, she's one of my very best friends right now, by the way. And I, I was telling her, what are you thinking of teaching Kafka to 19 year old kids who has no experience, we have no freaking experience in the world. And we are studying something that starts with when Gregor Samsa woke up one day, he found himself transported into a gigantic cockroach and was like, Okay, thank you for ruining my life. I mean, but it was very interesting and it was one of the best things that I ever read. I have a funny story about the that Kafka novel. It was uh, my, for some reason, my beach read. Like I would read it only on the beach. It's not a beach read, Salma. Of it's course not. it's not. <laughs> no, no, so it's not. It's I, not anything's read, actually. I mean, this is, we should, uh, we should read it with your therapist, maybe. By the end, for some reason... Uh, I kind of expected that he would, you know, I don't, spoiler for everyone, but like I expected. Like he would recover? <laughs> yes, yes. I kept reading till the end, waiting for him to recover. To recover, right? To recover, uh, be back to human form again. And so the ending was super depressing for me. I was like, what is the point of depressing. anything? You know, that was that was a nightmare for me for all, for my whole life. That, but the urge that, that, that we put into our jobs it's like I have to go to I have to go to work. I have to spend the ten or twelve hours in in whatever I'm doing at work. I have to prove that I'm the best person. I have to fulfill everything that I'm asked to. I have to be that kind of cog in this kind of evil machine. And I always feel like, am I transforming into this kind of cockroach that when whenever something happens, something huge happens to me, the main thing that I'm thinking about is I have to go to work. I think I'm, I've been recovering this feeling for like the last two or three years. But for my whole life, I was always Gregory Samsa, just wanting to go to fulfill whatever is asked uh, for me, even if I'm transformed into anything. So it's an evil, it's an evil piece of uh, writing, but it's really good. Right. I think for the past, uh, since 2020, I've been asking myself over, uh, over and over about this question, about how much self-worth and, or, you know, meaning you should give to your job uh, that you do, like your, your nine to five job how to detach yourself from making it all making your whole self-worth and and productivity and everything is about your job not about your actual life and everything else you do you know the, I think a lot of people because when this huge thing happened in our lives started contemplating and trying to ask well, about the meaning of life what should they do more because you know there was some time where, where things slowed down for a bit and that I think allowed for at least when I'm talking about myself allowed me to consider these things yeah the whole world slowed down with the pandemic of course and everybody started to think in a different way about 
the, the hours they're spending, the time, the, the effort, everything that's been going on in the professional life itself. And it's, it's more, it's, it's turning into a hunger game. It's something that it's a race that you have to go and you have to participate and you have to prove yourself the best or else you would just be kept on the side. And, and it's really, it's, it's all for, for nothing because we keep on consuming the same habits and consuming the same and, and doing the same exact mistakes every, every single job and every single day. We do the same pattern of mistakes, which always secures that we will always be kept in this loop of running into the Hunger Games. So to just step or when the world gives you an opportunity to step aside and to take a breath and to think if this is the right way of going through it, I think you should really appreciate that. We all should really appreciate this. I myself, I appreciate this very much because I I decided that I'm not going to be consumed into a job that I'm not comfortable in or I'm not very much, um, or I feel like it's not where I belong. It's not where I want to be. It's um, I'm, I'm not going just to, to do this just for the sake of having a job, for the sake. I don't have, honestly, I don't have anything to prove to anyone right now. It's like I've been working for years I don't have the same urge to prove that I'm really good or I'm an excellent person in whatever I'm doing. I don't have this anymore. I, I think I lost it on the way or maybe I I put so much effort into this. So right now it doesn't feel like it's a goal anymore. I don't I don't need to prove anything to anyone. I just need to feel at peace with myself and to okay, reduce my anxiety a little bit, to reduce the stress I'm exposed to a little bit because the world is already very stressful. So if I am contributing to this stress by putting more anxiety into or, or, or putting myself into more anxiety for for the sake of a job. So I don't think it's worth it anymore. That must have been really liberating when you realize that, yeah, I don't need to prove anything to anyone. It must have been very liberating. It is because I've always been trying to prove that I'm, I'm, I'm a very competitive person and I always try to be like the best in whatever I do which is really a bad thing. I used to think it's a good thing. I used to think it's uh, a way to excel. It's a way to uh, be the best person doing whatever you are doing. Uh, I discovered recent, not recently, I mean, in the last few years that, no, it's actually something that puts you in a load of stress and a load of uh, unneeded effort. It's unnecessary effort. You don't need this kind of effort because there's, who are you trying to prove what to? You are not, why are you trying to define yourself according to other people's standards? It's enough that you define yourself according to your own standards. And you know, you're, you're the best person who knows yourself, you know your mistakes, you know your flaws, you know everything about yourself. So I understand now that you have um, made this decision uh, of, you know, focusing on your writing and uh, quitting your like nine to five job. I want to ask you now about your morning routine. What does it look like? <laughs> it's very boring, actually. <laughs> I have a very boring uh, morning routine. I wake up and I start with uh, cleaning my kitchen, having my breakfast, taking my medication, having my coffee. Um, I start surfing a little bit of uh, social media. I usually, I mean, for at least like three to four days per week, I go out to have some coffee or breakfast with my sister. And I start the writing routine starting from 4 or 5 p.m. So if I don't have any errands or uh, anything that I need to do outside my house. And sometimes I write uh, outside, not not necessarily in the house, but I prefer to write in my place. So you're not like a morning person. You don't like write early morning. You write around 4 or 5 p.m. Yes. I, I mean, I wake up early, but I don't write in the morning. I prefer to start writing by 4 or 5. It's like I, I want to make sure that 
there will be nothing to disturb me. I would finish anything that needs to be done first. Uh, I make sure that in my morning I did everything. I met all the people I need to meet. I did all my errands. Um, I cooked. I did everything. So by four or five now, um, nothing would disturb me. So I can sit for four or five hours and write consistently. You write every day? Yes, I write every day, not necessarily in a specific uh, project. When I'm working on a novel or a, a certain solid project, this I write in. But even if I'm not, I make sure that I write every day, even if it's for one hour, even if it's like 500 uh, words. I heard that that's what Nagib Mahfouz used to do. Like, Oh, um, really? Yeah, that's he used very to write good, every uh, day. Go to the cafe and write every day. It's the key. I mean, if you're consistent, you will produce something. And I mean, even though I'm not a, a very, I mean, I don't produce, like I don't publish or write as many novels as other write, uh, writers and novelists, but still I make sure that my skill of writing wouldn't um, um, wouldn't rust because I'm not, not using it. And I have to say that I learned this from a friend of mine whose name is Hilal Shuman. He's a Lebanese writer. He's one of my very, very best friends. And he's the one who actually told me that. He, 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 was, he pushed me when I had a span of like four, four or three, three or four years of not writing at all and of just losing faith in myself as a person who can actually write, he was telling me that's because you're lazy. It's not because you can't write. You just, you're just lazy. But if you open your laptop or your notebook or whatever you write on and you start writing every day, even if it's not something for publishing, but you, you move your, your fingers, you, you wake up your writing skills. And if you do that, you find yourself writing a novel. I finished my novel before him, by the way. <laughs> he finished his novel I... after me, like, Five, six months after me. I think I follow him on Twitter. He's an amazing writer. He's a really, really good writer. I mean, aside from him being my friend, but he's a really good writer. I think I let my writing skills rust a little bit when I heard about what, from what you said. But for me, consistency is key, as you just said, for anything in life. And they even say, even with working out, for instance, like I struggle always with consistency, not because when you don't see the results, like when you expect them, you just like, you know, give up easily. Consistency is very important. So what's your favorite productivity hack Like I asked you a lot about your, your habits for writing because maybe because I want, I want to be inspired by you. <laughs> But what, <laughs> what, what's your favorite productivity hack in general? Actually, for, for when it comes to writing, not to work, to, not to production or to television production or to journalism, when it comes to writing, it's reading. Mm. It's reading. Reading makes me write. When I write, when I write. when I read a good piece of writing, when I read good poetry, although I don't write poetry at all. It, it makes me write. It makes me write instantly, instantly. Like I just put it down and I start writing right away. So reading good literature, like really good literature, something that's inspiring. It makes me write instantly. Who's your favorite poet? Um, right now or uh, like current one? I like Mustafa Brahim very much, but I my favorite uh, Egyptian colloquial uh, poet is Fuad Haddad. Mm. Yes, his, his has always been my favorite, always been my favorite. And when I was young, I, I used to get these questions like, who do you like more? Is it Salah Jaheen or Rahmat Fouad Nigm or Abdurrahman Al-Abdul? I like them all because I like the colloquial. I like Shari Ammay. I like the Egyptian colloquial poetry. Me too. But it has always been Fouad Haddad, like no competition. I like Abdurrahman Al-Abnouzi. I think he's the most authentic and original Arab poet of all. But still, Fouad Haddad, he penetrates my heart. I mean, he's someone who goes straight to my heart. And now it's Mustafa Brahim. Mustafa Brahim is very inspiring. He's very, I mean, he's very relevant. He's very close yeah. to, it's like we have something in common. We always have a shared experience, a shared trauma, a shared, some shared pains. Yeah. 
So he's, he's one of my favorites. You feel his words intensely, even if they yes. look very simple. The words look yes. simple. It's not like, as they say. Yes, it is. It is. It's, it's very, I mean, it's very easy to, for anyone to understand. It's not complicated. It's not sophisticated. It's, it's simple and it's close to anybody's heart, but it's all, also it's penetrating and it's very intense. Because as I was telling you, I think the thing that brings people together is when they share the same pain or the same collective experience. As a creator and an artist, do you feel the saying that you have to suffer to be a good artist or like that suffering is part of creating art and all of that? I'm very flattered that you're calling me an artist. That's to start with. Very flattering. Thank you for that. I don't think I am, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, yes, pain, of course, pain brings the, the best creativity. Always. Pain is always part of, it doesn't have to be like um, physical pain or it doesn't have to be like severe pain, different kinds of pains. Like it can be something, it can be any kind of of, uh, of struggle or any kind of pain. It brings out in you, it makes you feel more. It makes you feel, it makes you put your feelings into whatever art you're creating. If it was a painting, if it was a poem, if it was a novel, whatever it is, it makes you more vivid. It makes you more genuine. It You can... You, you're more sensitive to the experience itself. So yeah, I would say that, but, but it's, not, it's, it's, it's not something that's necessary. I mean, I don't want to sound very pragmatic, but you can use the pains of other people as well to create art. By using pain of others, you mean you can observe life and what's happening around you and, and get some inspiration, right? I, I, I started um, my, my conversation with you by telling you that the most curious thing I am about is other people's stories. And the stories always carry some kind of pain. It always carries some kind of struggle and some kind of life experience that's not always as easy and smooth for, for, for each and everyone. So, um, yes, you can observe, you can try to feel other people's experiences, other people's stories, and you can formulate these stories. And you don't have, I mean, people always say that a novel is always a personal experience. That's like 90% of the time. It, has, it always has something to, it has to have some personal experience in it it can it's it's a personal kind of art it's not something that it's completely out of you it's it's innate it's you you bring part of yourself in it but you can also bring other people you can bring other experiences you can meet somebody in uh, the end of the world and do you feel like that person he has a story that it needs to be shared and it can be told can be told in a million different ways so That, that's, that's how I can explain it by saying using other people's pains. I don't mean that you, I mean, you be that evil person who absorb other people's pain and make use of them, but I mean that you can feel them and tell them in a way that makes it eternal or for other people to live them as well and to uh, feel them and to make them feel that they are not alone. That, that, that's, that's what I meant. So yes, it's, it's observing, it's recording, it's documenting, it's putting it into a story, it's uh, formulating a whole life around it, bringing it to life, making it live forever. Donia, what makes you feel inspired or like your best self? That's a very hard question because it's there are like so many different things. I was telling you that when I read a good poem or when I read a good piece of literature, it makes me always inspired and it can make me write uh, better and easier. I don't want to sound very cliche, but of course, when I visit a different country, I'm, I'm, a, lo I'm a solo traveler. I like to travel alone. And walking in strange streets, getting lost in a big city. I'm a city girl. I love cities. When you get lost in a city, when you don't know where you're going, when you just walk around and you observe the people around you and you, you start to imagine how every single person was 
having how, how was the day of each person around you or some people around you what you you sit somewhere that you never sat before and you start looking around and you try to put the puzzle pieces of the puzzle together and so it's it, it it sounds a bit cliche but it's actually real you can do this in a city inside the country you're living in you can do it in a completely foreign place with people who don't understand their language but strangers inspire me ordinary people inspire me people who are completely ordinary that you would never think that they carry a story behind them i think those are the people who are most inspiring in the world like the normal the normies as they call them i totally agree with you when i was at work i had uh, some sort of content uh, initiative where i would interview an employee from a different office every week and i always wanted to pick random employees because i always like to be surprised by the things they do outside work you know Yeah, I think anyone can be unique uh, under the right lens or every you know. single person. I mean every single person is unique in his way. Every person who thinks. I mean we all think we're different, but I think it's better that we all we are all the, the same in different kind of ways. So mm. we're not different. I'm not a, I, I don't want to be a different person. I don't want to be uh like uh, I'm I'm not like everybody else. No, I want to be like everybody else. I, mean, I want to have this kind of solidarity with everybody else. I want to be part of this group that we share the same life experience, but we, we know that each and every one of them, one of us, has a completely different story than the other one. So we are all the same and we are all different in, in, in sort of way. I want to now ask you about the best moment of your life. What was it? Whoa. <laughs> Is there something as that? <sighs> I mean, there are so many, there are so many brilliant moments. The, I mean, the moment my niece was born, I would never forget that moment, for instance, because I, I, I felt like my whole life changed. Uh, mm -hmm. The moment when I published my first, my first novel and my second novel, the moment I was awarded and then I was on stage and getting an award, the moment that I knew that there's a translation coming to... Um, I mean, this my my novel was getting translated to to my first translation was to English, so that was a big moment for me. So there are like many brilliant moments, but I can say that there's one super moment that embraces. I mean, or that embraces everything else. So no, it's it, there are so many great moments that you feel like this is happiness. This is th this is the, the moment that we should keep in a box and we never let go often. And this is the moment I would. actually remember forever and it's it's one of them but it's not the ultimate it's not the absolute because there are so many moments are yet to come and there's so many others that were forgotten or were the past and we thought that they were the happiness so i love optimistic donia <laughs> i am i yeah, i mean i don't strike people as an optimistic person but believe it or not i always think of the best case scenarios and i always think that things are, that things are great even in the worst situations i always feel that oh it could have been worse so no we're, we should we should be thankful we should appreciate this so yes i i know i don't strike people as an optimistic person but i am and i always see the the the, the big picture of that things could have been worse mm. moving on that trail of uh, optimism and positive feelings do you remember the best compliment you've ever received <laughs> okay i i received a letter from a reader she's a, she back then she was a very young reader because i think she was maybe she was 16 or 17 and it was about my first novel my first novel was technically the weakest thing that i ever wrote because it was a first experience it had a lot of technical problems it wasn't 
coherent enough. It it had a lot of flaws, and I knew that it had a lot. It had all the flaws of the first novel, like 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 anyone else. But it was good enough to be published. I didn't put so much expectations on it, but I was happy that I could let it out, and it was my first step on the writing career. So I was I was proud of it. I'm still proud of it. I like it a lot. But I received a letter from a girl, very young girl, and I remember that the the guy in I mean the the protagonist in in Hayawa Doha in her in Doha the first novel his name was Hassan so that girl she wrote me a letter and she said do you remember this line that you wrote in the novel that you were keeping the speed dial of uh, six to Hassan uh, that was when there were speed dials okay a really long time ago and she said <laughs> and the guy that I love I always put him on six because it reminds me because how I feel towards him is exactly how Doha felt to Hassan. So I was like, Aww. oh my God, really? Seriously, this is, is that a thing? Is that something that people could actually get? I mean, she felt the same thing. That, that's the best, the best thing that I can ever feel. Like in someone that's young and that genuine and she's, she's very pure. She doesn't have any agendas. She doesn't read it to come out with something from it. And she felt this kind of passion and this kind of feeling towards, from, from two fictional characters, completely fictional characters. And she attributed this to her, the guy that she loves and she to the extent that she put the speed dial of the guy that she loves she put it on the same speed dial so that was something that's very interesting and it was a really good compliment from the girl and she also said that she always kept Heodoha on the top shelf of her books and that it was one of her favorites it was I wanted to talk about random arrangements since it's your rec- most recent novel and it's the one that got nominated, right? Actually, uh, Cigarette Number no. 7 won uh, the best novel for 2014 uh, for, and it was, it was nominated and it won uh, the, first, the, the best one, uh, I mean the first prize. Uh, and Tertibet uh, Ashwa'e, Random Arrangements, was nominated uh, a couple of years ago, I think already last year, and it was shortlisted. This year, I actually, I didn't know that it was nominated except for the last few days because that usually happens through the publishing house and usually they don't tell you. So I knew from the social media like a few days ago. Uh, It was a very different, I would say it's experimental. It's very experimental because it's an epistolary and the epistolary is based on uh, letters. So it's a series of letters on a span from uh, 2004 until 2018 and it's um it's addressed to four different people the i mean the letters you never meet or you never know um, the person who's addressing the letters or who's writing the letters but you know the four people who are addressed who are uh, who the letters are sent to and supposedly the the letters all through the years they make a full arc or a full story of the the, the person the person who's telling the who's writing the letters itself so uh, it's it's very experimental. I never I've never I've never done this before. I've never tried this before. But I love writing letters. I think it's one of the the, the nicest things and the most genuine things ever. And for curious Selma, I mean, this is something that gets people very curious. People are so curious to read other people's letters. Mm. It's of course it's a trespass on privacy and everything. But what if you find the letter in the street and you it doesn't have an owner or anything you want to. I mean, you read it and you want to know who's that person and who is he talking to and what is what, what was his life, what what did, what did it look like? And I mean, it's it's something that evokes curiosity. And I think it's something common. Like all people are curious to read letters. So there are love letters. There are letters addressed to a father. There are letters addressed to a child. There are letters addressed to a friend. And they all make a full story of 
span of years from 2004 until 2018. So this is the, the main idea I mean, of Tansibat uh, Ashwai. And it is very random, <laughs> like this podcast. You have been writing letters to your dad who passed away for 15 years, right? And then you decided to publish them. You published them recently. More or less, yes. Yes. What was the reason? Yeah, that's something I'm curious to know about. Like, what was the reason you thought I want to publish these letters, these very private letters with everyone? I'll start with you from the decision of writing the letters themselves. Uh, when my father passed away, I was full of anger. I was full of, I felt like I was tricked. I felt like I was, um, there was some trick here. I was, I'm not done yet. I'm not finished yet. I, I have so much to tell you. I have so much to share with you. My father died when I was 21 years old. So I, I, I didn't have enough time to share everything I wanted to with him. So I decided um, when, when one year passed on his death, I decided that I'm going to tell him everything that I want in a letter. And um, back then, and actually until now, I had this belief that he's going to read that letter in a way. When that happened, there was no social media. I mean, there was no Facebook. There was no, that was, that was 2004. There was no Facebook yet. There was no much platforms on the internet. Uh, there was barely internet. So I just wrote them in a notebook and I kept them with me. And every year I wrote another letter more of summarizing the what happened all through the year and expressing how i feel i think for the first maybe eight years it was all anger it was all i was so pissed i was so angry i was expressing that i do not agree i do not approve that you die i do not approve of anything that happened so it was more it was very therapeutic that i it was my outlet to let all my feelings out in a way and it was my way of dealing with the loss that I had, which was a really big loss. And then when there was Facebook and there were, I had a blog, I had some, some platforms to write on, I started putting them on those platforms. And then I started getting so many reactions on them. I think this is something universal, the loss, the feeling of loss itself. It doesn't have to be for a father. It can be for anything. It can be for a cat. It can be for a house. It can be for a mom. It can be for any, for a friend for a dream, for anything. So there were so many people who were reacting to it and people were sharing how they felt what I was going through. And then I started to get some comments like, why aren't you publishing these letters? And I, my, my reply was always for the first 10 years, it was always because it's personal. And they were like, but you put it on Facebook. Like, yes, I put it on Facebook, but I'm a very private person, even on social media. I don't, I'm, I, I'm, I don't have public profiles. I just limit them to the people who I know are not many people so it's not it's not that public but it's still not that private so it was like one of my friends told me it can be a tribute it can be something to be that your father can always be remembered with this it can be remembered with how his daughter is keeping him alive in her letters for years after he passed away and then i started thinking about how how this kind of of um expressing your emotions for a loss can be a way of reviving a memory of somebody who you really love. And that was, it, it was start, I was starting to, to be convinced with this, but at the same time, I know that this does not make a story. It does not make a novel. I have to put so many elements into it. I have to build up many elements around it so it can be formulated into a full story. So I started bringing back all the old letters, the ones that dated back to 2004, 
and I started complimenting them with different letters to different people talking about different things. They're not dealing with loss this time. They're dealing with different aspects and different uh, domains. And I decided to pick four figures, the four figures which are common for everybody has somebody he loves, everybody has a father, everybody has a child that he loves, everybody has a friend. So those four elements or those four pillars, they make, they, they're common in, in any, anybody's life. They don't have to be the same portrayals of the people I'm drawing, but people would relate to those four figures. So I started writing the other letters aside from the father's letters. The father's letters are the one, the only one that's completely, I mean, it was written way before Tertibet Ashwaya was written and was formulated into a novel. Of course, I made a lot of editing in them and my editor did a lot of work on them, but still it was written. I mean, you can sense even the language, even the way of expression, the um, the Arabic itself, you can sense how different it is dating from 2004 to 2018. So uh, that's how it came to be published. I didn't know that your letters inspired your novel. That's amazing. I think what we have in What we have in common, when I blog my most inner thoughts online, for some reason, it it feels liberating to me. Sometimes when I am holding something that is very vulnerable and the more shame or, you know, uh, anxiety or insecurity I have about that feeling. And then when I write it down and I let it in the world, the more it liberates me of these all of these negative feelings. It's like it's out there. I'm not ashamed of it anymore. I feel like it's, um, but as for writing for for your uh, dad, on the first year my dad passed away, which was uh, uh, in June, I made a a podcast uh, episode about it. And kind of similar to what you said, I just wanted to revive the memory. I I felt like it couldn't just pass away without me saying anything, you know? I know that in therapy is a very common kind of advice that they would tell you when someone passed away and you're working through your grief is to write them a letter. But I never was able to bring myself to write a personal and very intimate letter. You know what I mean? I, yeah, I'm, I know what you mean because I mean, every person has his own way. Of, I mean, a podcast is a way of expressing how you feel. A painting is a way of expressing another person's uh, feelings. So it's it's according to how the thing that suits you the best, the things that actually that you can do and you're you're comfortable doing it uh, in this way. So I guess a podcast in your case is something that you do that, like really well. So it's it, it's it, it can be the best means for you to let out your grief. For me, it's it's writing. For another person, it can be painting. For another person, it can be poetry, and and so on and so forth. Every person, some, some people knit, they make socks, and mm. they make uh, scarves. So. Each and every person has his own way. Some people cook. Imagine, I mean, yeah. believe it or not, some people use cooking as their method or of, of grieving. So it's it's whatever thing that you're really good at that you feel like it's it's your way of expressing yourself and letting out how you feel. I love what you said about how uh, about letters and curiosity and that people always want to know about the letter who wrote it to who and. Uh... I think I would be thinking about this for a while. Donia, what's one question you wish that I had asked you and how would you have answered? You know, when we start, when when I told you that I'm so much interested in your podcast, I had nothing at my mind. I mean, I didn't know how this will go. I didn't know that it, I mean, it will just steer around a lot of life experiences and, and, and details like this. So I I don't have, I mean, I don't have something on my mind right now 
I love talking about about everything that we talked about, especially the writing part and the novels. And maybe maybe our shared experience in living in Dubai was something that I was expecting. You've lived in Dubai for for like fifteen for thirteen years, right? Uh, on and off, yes, or since two thousand nine. What's your main your main takeaway of being an expat for like thir- all these years? Remember when I told you I'm a city girl? I love big cities and the big cities inspire me and I love walking in the street and I love seeing people around me. I love busy streets. I like to, I don't want to say that I, I even like the pollution in the, the, the horns of the cars. I, <laughs> these are things that make me feel safe. I, I swear I feel safe when I'm around billions of people in the street. It, I mean, I'm a, I'm a very anxious person, by the way. And this makes my anxiety go down, not up, which is, I know this is strange, but I feel more safe with people around me And this was the main thing that I suffered when I was in Dubai, that it's, I didn't have this. I didn't walk in the streets. I didn't see people around me. I didn't feel like I was, I mean, technically we were, we were as women also, as women expats there, we're very safe. We do not expose ourselves to, we're not exposed to the dangers that might we might be exposed to in our countries or specifically in Cairo, but There is some kind of solidarity here that you feel like whenever something happens, there are people around you. People will be around even if they don't do anything. That's true. So that was the thing. I mean, I appreciate a lot of things about Dubai. I have to say this. And I, I learned a lot from living there. I I learned how to be independent. I learned how to manage my finances, which is something very challenging when it comes to the, U, to the UAE. And to have a lot of privileges and a lot of easy things that you appreciate when you go back to your third world country i mean like you appreciate the electricity and the water and the internet and everything that's like it's basic you don't need to worry about things like this in in, in a city like dubai or in a country like emirates but still i did not i always felt alone even with my friends around i had a lot of friends there i i, I saw them regularly it's not about friends it's of course part of it they make things easier but still cairo is very warm Even it's chaotic, but this chaos, it brings some warmth. It brings some security in you. I know this mm. sounds stupid, but it's how I feel about it's, Cairo it, and Dubai. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's your own experience and your own voice. And I, I, I kind of understand after hearing a lot, the more I hear from you today, the more I now get it, why you feel like, yes, I miss my home. I miss the pollution. I, I, I still don't get all the pollution, but like, yeah, I miss Cairo and the warmth. The solidarity. When people ask me about my favorite city, I mean, I always say it's Cairo. And the second to it, it comes, it's New York. I mean, I love New York. New York is so similar to Cairo, by the way. It's different I would imagine. To the architect, to the street. Yes, it's busy. There are always people around. It never sleeps. You always feel like you're not alone. You can always get something to eat at the, the I mean, four uh, o'clock in the morning. You can always find people working, people walking, people talking to you. You can always have a conversation with a random stranger. Things that you don't get when you live in Dubai. The solidarity part is is what I completely agree on with you about Cairo. Uh, the other stuff, I'm having a very big uh, love-hate relationship with Cairo that everyone around <laughs> me knows. Everyone who knows me know how complex my relationship is with the city that I was raised and grew up in. I mean, it makes sense. It's not, it's not easy to love. I, I love the randomness of things in the street. That's what I miss. It's the beautiful chaos. The beautiful chaos that unless you get out of it, 
for a while you wouldn't understand you like i remember when i used to meet foreigners foreign expats who live in cairo who are from europe or from somewhere else and they talk about how they embrace the chaos in cairo it makes them feel alive i used to look at them like oh my god you're such privileged kids who could go anywhere and you choose to live in cairo years later when i go to cairo now and walk in the street and hear some random guy say something out loud and then other people from other across the streets respond to him and then everyone in the street starts laughing i'm like oh my god i'm i so miss yeah. this i didn't realize I, europe, it. europe is depressing it's depressing it's i i can't imagine that i would live in a city and by five or six or even seven or eight p.m yeah. There's nobody on the streets. I can't I imagine myself. Yeah, I think we're used to we're used to never sleeping. Yeah, we're used to Cairo yes. being chaotic and like. Uh, I want to have a walk at any point of the day. I want to go get some bread or get some uh, dinner at any point of the night. I mean, I want to go down Dunia, and find someone. Car horns at seven a.m. <laughs> yes, yes, it's a nightmare. It's a beautiful nightmare. <laughs> Okay, okay. I, I don't know. I I I don't like. You know what? When you compare it with the gated community, when you compare it with the suburbs or the outskirts of Cairo, I can't find. I can't imagine myself living in uh, Madinti or in Rehab or in Taga. Uh, I can't imagine myself living there. I want to feel like there are people in the building next to me. There, it's not. It's not deserted. It's yeah. not. There are cars in the street. There. I know it's it's too much, and sometimes you don't want to hear anything, and it's better that you leave it all. Old Cairo is, is always going to be my favorite part of Cairo, you know, like the part where around Giza and not the part I grew up in, but the, that part where you feel like there's a lot of history. The streets could, if the streets could speak, they would tell you a lot about history. Yeah, I, everywhere. of course. I mean, history is great and everything, but I like, I mean, I like all the parts that are not gated. I like Masri Gazida. I like Zamalek and Mohansin, Shobra, the downtown, of course. I mean, these, the streets, the streets, the, the like normal normal ordinary streets where you can find buildings and stores and you can stop stop by a shop and buy something and you can have a taxi not an uber and you can have an ordinary walk in the street i mean it, it's not gated there are no there's i mean gated anything that's gated is threatening for me it's it's completely opposite to a lot of people uh, around me here because people think that when it's gated it's, it's virtual no when it's gated when it's gate it's not virtual when it's gated it's threatening because why would you gate a place if, it, if there's no threat? So no, I would rather live in a place without gates, a place that's in, in the city, in the heart of the city itself, rather than live in a community that has a gate around it and only people are allowed with, a, a, like, um, I don't know, they have to show an ID or something to get into the place. So it makes me feel like an outcast. So yeah, that's why I like the car horns and the pollution <laughs> and all this ugliness it's the beautiful ugliness of cairo what a beautiful yes, but... tribute to cairo oh my god <laughs> sorry for the sarcastic comment but like yeah new, new um, york is the same new york is exactly the same. i wish to visit new york one day i i'm sure yeah i'm sure it will be a a, a more intense or a same intense version of cairo in a way yeah. dunya where can listeners find you online online i'm basically on twitter and on, and on instagram uh, those are the two main platforms that I'm public on. Donia, I really enjoy talking to you. You, I know you have so much more in stories and interesting things to share about you. And I cannot ask all the questions I have in this short time. But I really enjoy talking to you. Uh, thank you so much for uh, being here. Thank you, Selma, for having me. I'm, I'm so happy. This is my the first podcast that I actually oh. uh, be part of. Yes. <laughs> so I feel so much... Um, 
I feel like I'm lucky, I'm privileged, and I feel uh, uh, so happy that I'm part of this. And um, yeah, this is going to be great. I mean, keep on the keep up the good work and just make so many podcasts so we can hear and hear so many stories and so many uh, people and stay curious as you are. I will keep the randomness. Thank you. I will yes, tell please. everyone Donia told me to keep the randomness going. Please do. Thanks, Donia. Thank you, Sal. Yeah. Bye.